Welcome to the Bethel Church Austin Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this sermon by a special guest speaker. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit www.bethelchurchaustin.com. Good evening, everyone. Do we have any happy people in here? Yeah? Good. We've had a, had a wonderful day, and I've uh, enjoyed, Kenneth and I enjoyed this morning, spending with the pre-launch team in this afternoon. And, um, you know, Renee introduced Lauren, and Lauren's with us, Lauren Valentin, and we need, to, we need to give you guys a heads up of how important she is to us. And um, she, you know, Renee made it very clear, this part of, part of the uh, reason this church was planning because the three of us were working together on just finding ways to get these guys to Austin. And, uh, but Lauren is, uh, is our kind of director of operations. She's our executive pastor, uh, our number two. She kind of runs, she basically runs almost all of Bethel. Would that be about right, Lauren? It, it, it's a toss-up. It's a it toss-up. But no, Lauren's been on a team for a number of years, and she's really super instrumental for what we do at Bethel. And so, Lauren, do you want to stand up and say just wave? Just say hi. Just say hello. Super important for us. And uh, we wanted her to come out and join us on this trip because she was so a big part of just uh, this church getting started. And so, and her husband right now is hunting moose and grizzly bear in Alaska. And Lauren's like, that's fine with me. I'm in a nice hotel while you're outside camping. And so, and it's also an honor to be in a room full of uh, wonderful pastors and leaders from around this region. And some of you I met uh, a little over a year ago at, at the Nashville Church, and again, it's a wonderful honor, and the people that, this is your church, amazing that you allowed uh, Bethel Austin, so thank you all for being so welcoming, and that was the one thing that we shared earlier today. We were so blown away about the hunger, excitement, and the receptivity of different leaders and pastors in Austin saying, please come, and um, so again, just another shout out to the pastors and leaders in the room. We are indebted to you, and we're excited to partner with you. I know these guys are passionate about that, and we are as well. And I remember when I came back from Austin the first time and told our senior leadership team, and uh, all of us were just blown away about, wow, they really are hungry for, for us to come. And so we're just excited to be here. So thank you guys so much for, for doing that. Yeah. If you have your Bibles, you can open it anywhere you want. It will all work tonight. It will all work tonight. Now go ahead and get it open to Luke chapter 15. Uh, don't read anything, please. If you want to get your finger in there or a piece of paper, uh, you can do that. But I want to share some testimonies real quick, and then we're going to take a moment and pray for some people uh, in the room and then maybe people outside the room. Um, we've been seeing an increased uh, miracle in the area of autism and Asperger's and learning disorders, bipolar. There's a lot of things in that spectrum. And it's been happening for a while, so it's not, it's not new in the sense that we've never seen a breakthrough. But something's happening right now in the last, honestly, the last year or so, it feels like there's just an increased uh, pace of breakthrough that's happening. And I have a series of testimonies that are actually creating a momentum of breakthrough in this area. And so we're going to pray for people in this room uh, in just a little bit. But it actually started, Candace and I were in Norway last summer of last year. And we were doing this, uh, basically a summer camp, all the churches, kind of like what the Brits do in England. They just camp out on some open field in the rain and have a big tent and have, you know, two, three, five, ten thousand people come. And 
and the Norwegian do something similar. And so we went to this really fun summer camp in Norway in the summer, it's just stunning. And, and then that was last summer, this year, in February at our prophetic conference. We usually have anywhere from 30 to 60 Norwegians come to every conference. They just like, half the country had been to Bethel by now. I mean, they just come in droves. And these ladies came up to me and gave me a bag, and I can see through the bag, it was like a plastic bag, and there were these, these uh, long rectangle yellowish gold bars, which is Norwegian chocolate. And so I'm like, oh yeah, more Norwegian chocolate. And the funny thing about Norwegian chocolate is I, I go to, when I go to Switzerland, I, we were telling them that, man, Norwegians, they got, Swiss people are very, they, they don't think anyone else in the world knows how to make chocolate. That's how confident they are in their chocolate making skills. And so I'm telling them, I said, Norway has some really good chocolate. And no joke, the Swiss are like, what? Do they even make chocolate? I said, oh yeah, it comes in this gold wrapper and I'm telling them. They couldn't believe me. Like, no, they do not make, Norwegians do not make chocolate. I mean, they were just bashing the Norwegians. And I said, no, look, they totally make chocolate. And they finally said, okay, if they actually make chocolate, it's because a Swiss guy went and taught them how to make chocolate. <laughs> That's how confident Swiss people were. But anyway, I saw this bag and then I, um, and there was some other stuff in it. Well, I didn't pay attention to it. I just put it in the back of my truck, on the back seat. And I totally forgot about it. About two or three weeks later, I'm cleaning my truck out. And thankfully, it was, um, it was winter time, so the chocolate didn't melt. It was just in my truck. And in this bag was a letter. And I had the letter with me, and I, I've been carrying this around with me um, all year. And I want to read you most of it. Dear Eric, I'm not sure if you remember me. My name is Janina. Last year, when you visited Norway, you prayed for me at the Bible school, at summer camp. And since that day, my life has become much better. I no longer have Asperger's. And then she, my favorite line in the whole letter besides that one is, I now have the ability to forgive people who have done me wrong throughout my life. And then she said, I work with the children in our church now and I've lost 33 pounds. And then there was a picture, which I, I don't have the picture with me. And I, and I remember, I looked at the picture, because I don't remember praying for her. But when I saw the picture, I go, oh, I do remember praying for her. But she didn't look at us. She was so shut down, her hair was over her face. And she just prayed like this, and that was it. So we never really got a look at her face. But um, I remember the color of her hair. And I'm like, oh my goodness. She, and the lady that gave me the letter, they said, Eric, they took her back to the doctor. And the doctor said she no longer have Asperger's. Yeah. So it's been verified no longer have Asperger's. Isn't that amazing? And so that was last summer. I got the letter this spring. And so that was in February. In March, we have a weekend that we set aside for our church family. And we had one of our young men, his name is Simon, who is 14 years old in March. And he stood on the stage. His parents were up there. To give you the backdrop of this family, they were Canadian. They're from Canada. And they had, whoop, give it up for Canadians. And they were from Canada. They had moved to Reading because their son was extremely autistic and was severely so much so that it would, um, in their words, it would actually destroy the family. It would just break in the family. It would just way hard, way complicated for them to have this son who was out of control. And at the time, he was 13. And he, had, he would pretty much his whole life that way. And out of desperation, this family moved from Canada, moved to Reading, just to pray, just to see if their son would get healed. That was their entire motivation to move to Reading. 
when they switched countries because they were that desperate. So here's this Simon, he's now 14, and this was in March of this year, stood on our stage and began to give his testimony, and he was fully in his right mind. And what happened was he, um, he, and he, he, he shared this all publicly, so none of this is private. He, he was addicted to pornography extremely. So he went to our youth pastor, Tom Crandall, and told Tom, and Tom said, every time you're tempted, worship God. And so Simon said, and I worship God a lot. 13-year-old <laughs> boy. And, um, and through a series of prayer and through a series of things, any type of bright light or crowd, he would lose it. He would dive and hide and he would, just, he would be out of control. So he's up on stage in his right mind. He actually gone back to the doctor and the doctor said he no longer had autism. Whoa. Isn't that amazing? And he spoke, he was in his right mind, he was speaking clearly, and then he, this thing came on him, this boldness came on him, and his parents are behind him weeping, because they moved to America just to see if this would happen, and they're standing there watching their son give a testimony. So after he shared a testimony, he began to preach the gospel. I mean, he just got on fire. Like, that passion, he never lost the passion. He just got his mind back. And he began to preach the gospel. Anybody dealing with autism, Asperger's, stand to your feet. And no one stood. If you're dealing with shame, you need to break off that shame. And he just preaching the gospel. And finally, people stood up. It was unbelievable. And the parents grabbed the mic, and they're just weeping because their son had been completely healed. So that was him. Yeah. So that was in March, that was in March, and then a lady came up to me, uh, let's see, very shortly thereafter that, and she's from Atlanta, Georgia, not far from here, sort of not far from here. <laughs> You're closer to Atlanta than I am, so that, that's where my mind thought. It's right around the corner, it's right there. <laughs> she came up to me, and I, would, and I, would, I spoke that morning, and I went to the back door to say goodbye to people as they left the service that day, and she came up to me, and she said, um, I... In 2015, this was this year, so she was telling a story about three years ago. 2015, your dad gave a word of knowledge about brain trauma and learning disorders. And at the time, she had a son that had severe learning disorders, could not be put in a normal school, had to be put in special education, had special needs, etc., etc. And your dad gave a word of knowledge in 2015 for his specific condition. So I stood, in, I stood for my son. This mom is telling me this. So that was 2015, and this year, this was, I think it was June, because the timing's about right, or May. She said, my son just graduated from Georgia Tech University with honors. He had learning disorders. He had brain trauma, learning disorders, etc. And he was obviously completely healed and graduated with honors from Georgia Tech University. So I go to South Africa, and um, any South Africans? That's awesome. There's people from all, I love this, South Africa. I love South Africa. You guys are special people. You've got my heart, I'll tell you that. Went twice in two months this year, which is, you deserve a medal when you walk off the plane in South Africa. It takes forever to get there. It's between 40 and 44 hours just to get to that country. So I feel they need to give you like a gold medal. Welcome, you've made it. So I'm sharing, I shared those three testimonies at a conference on Wednesday night. I just shared this testimony, then I had people stand up um, that either had that condition or had a, a, someone they knew, a friend or family, with those conditions to stand up. And so we prayed for people, really simple, and that was that. That was Wednesday night. 
two nights later, Friday night, the closing night, and before I get up to close out the conference, they had a lady come up and share her story. Now, I'm going to read you the letter that she wrote, but she shared this all out loud. So I share those same three testimonies you heard. So this was um, Friday night. My daughter is 17 years old, diagnosed Asperger's with bipolar mood disorder at age six. Although verbal, there have been significant delays in her social emotional development and she has suffered from aggressive physical meltdowns. My 24 year old son has been afraid to be alone with her as she has physically hurt him. And just the mother was working in the children's ministry um, at the conference. And what had happened is when I, we had people stand, somebody ran to the children's room and said, Eric's praying for people with these conditions. So she ran into the room in the back, stood there, received prayer, and then ran back into the children's room. That was Wednesday night. And so on Wednesday, I received prayer, when e er, prayer for healing when Eric prayed. I didn't notice much change as I had been away from home serving on the kids' team during the conference, having left her in faith with her anxious brother. And she said out loud, she described that her, um, her daughter, who's 17, would beat up her 24-year-old brother often. Like, she was just very violent, and so on and so forth. Today, Friday, I received a message from my daughter asking how to use the washing machine. And as she wanted to do her washing. Now, the mom is weeping. Now, I understand, parent, the fact that your teenager would ever do the laundry is worth <laughs> crying over fully understand that. I know it's a miracle in our house when they actually take it to the washer, to the dryer. I mean, that one step right there is like, oh my gosh, God is real. The fact that my daughter can move her clothes to the dryer, it's unbelievable. Anyway, but this, this situation is obviously very different. And, um, and so the daughter said, mom, how do you do the laundry? And the mom is shocked. I would amaze that cleaning, self-organization, self-help skills have never been in her skill set. I gave her instructions over the phone, and she received them without any anxiety. And the mom is weeping while she's showing this. She's 17 years old, which she normally experiences when learning something new. And the letter says, I arrived home, but she said out loud, she said, once I gave the instructions, I raced home. The reason was she, she was afraid that the daughter wouldn't, because um, whenever she received instruction, if she couldn't do it or understand it, she would get violent. So the mom raced home, went straight to the washing machine because she thought that would be smashed in and broken. So she went to the washing machine. The washing machine was fine, and she noticed the clothes were hanging on the drying, the, the line, just drying. And everything's peaceful, so she goes into the room. I saw washing on the line, and when I went to my bedroom, my bed was made. Now the mom lost it. She said this is the first time in her daughter's life that she'd ever made a bed. 17 years old. Because she couldn't learn something. It, would just, it just wouldn't click. And she said, Mommy, look in the cabinet. I looked in the cabinet and all the clothes were folded and put away. And now the mom, I mean, the mom is honestly, she's having a hard time telling us the story at this point. Why is this a miracle? She had never been able to fold clothes. And when I tried to teach her one, she has such a bad meltdown, she ripped all her clothes and broke the cabinet doors off the cabinets. So when the mom got home, all the clothes were folded and put away, the beds made, and she, mom is flipping out. So she asked the son, how's, how's your sister been today? And he said, great, she's surprisingly normal. So that was Friday night. Incredible. We got a text message the next Friday 
um, from South Africa. The mom took the daughter back to her psychologist, to her doctors, and the doctor said she no longer had Asperger or bipolar, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Complete breakthrough. Isn't that amazing? So that was in, it get, there's more, we're gonna keep going here. So that was in South Africa. Um, we're in England the next month in July. We're doing a leaders event in Harrogate, England. And I share, I'm sh the same testimony that I've read you. Now I've got letters and I've got all this time. I'm sharing all these testimonies. Again, I had people stand up, we prayed. And that was on the first night or something. The very last, or no, sorry, the second night of the conference, a lady from Ireland walks up and she, sh I have a picture on my phone somewhere. She showed me a text message. She said, because what I do, and we're going to do in just a moment, I have people stand, we pray, and then if that person is not in the room, I ask them to text them right now or text the parents and say, hey, we just prayed for so-and-so. Are you noticing anything right now? So we did that in Harrogate at the leaders' event. So this lady from Ireland, her family's back in Ireland. She texted her family to say, hey, we just prayed for, and she had a 21-year-old son. So she comes up to me, shows me her phone, and I read the text message, and the text message says this, Mom, I just did the dishes, 21-year-old son, I just did the dishes, there wasn't enough room in the dishwasher, so I hand-washed them, hand-dried them, put them back in the cabinet. And the mom is just rocked, she's Eric, my son had the condition called dyspraxia which is an auto-learning um, disease, basically, which means you can't teach them anything because they won't remember. They don't have the ability to remember something. So you're having to teach them the same thing every day for their entire life. So he's 21 years old. And the, so he texted and said, Mom, I just did the dishes. He's all, he can't do that. He doesn't have the ability to remember how to do things. Well, and then she showed me another text message from the sister saying, Mom, I don't know what's going on with my brother, but he's cleaning the kitchen right now. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And then, so that, that one happened. And then uh, there was another gal in the same event came up and said, yeah, my, my autistic, autistic aspect, I can't forget which one, I was experienced breakthrough and, and the same thing. And then I was in... Uh, I was in some other place and we had another breakthrough happen. So what I want to do right now is if you, you, or someone you know, friend or family or an acquaintance has any type of Asperger's, autism, severe or minor, or anything that I mentioned, if they're bipolar or have any learning disorders, I want you to stand in your feet for yourself or for someone that you know. And we're going to take a moment right now and just believe the Lord to come and heal them. So stand, if it's for you or for someone else, just stand to your feet right now. Oh, this is going to be fun. Okay, what I want you to do, for those of you that are not standing, if you're sitting by someone that is standing, just turn around or just put your hands on them. And uh, some of you might need to put your hands on several people. I guess two people. If you did several, that would be your leg. That might be awkward. So let's just get around to everyone and let's just take a moment right now. I want to make sure everybody's covered. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for the momentum of testimonies. We thank you for the momentum of miracles that are taking place in this specific area of Asperger's and autism. And if you're watching online right now, please stand as well. If you're by yourself, just put your hand on yourself. But we right now, by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, we say no more autism, no more Asperger's, no more dyspraxia, no more, no more disorder of the mind at all. We command bipolar, your days are done. 
and we speak complete health and wholeness in the name of Jesus. Just take a moment right now and just begin to pray. Just begin to pray for healing and breakthrough right now. Just take a moment. That's right. That's right. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we say no more. We cancel this assignment and we say no more in the name of Jesus. And right where they're at, whether they're in the room or in another location, we ask that you would visit them and bring healing to them right now. And everybody said? Amen. 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 Give everyone a high five. And go ahead and grab your seat. And for those of you that stood for someone else, get your phones out right now and send the family or that person a text. Just send them a text. Just let them know that you just pray for them and ask them if they've noticed anything. Now, I, I, the reason I asked that, because what I've noticed is the gal in South Africa, they saw breakthrough within the first two days, but they didn't see complete breakthrough for another week. And so there are times it's important to recognize what are you noticing different. So I encourage parents especially. Uh, sometimes we're looking for complete breakthrough, which we should, but sometimes we should be looking for small, like, oh my goodness, my child responded to me differently. Yeah. Now my child can make eye contact with me. Yeah. Look for yeah. those little measures of breakthrough, because we've seen some of these don't happen all at once. Some of them happen over time. That young man, Simon, that didn't happen overnight. I think it was about a six-month period of time that he got completely set free fully. And we have other people that had... Um, severe autism that it took a couple years. And so just look for those minor, minor inches of breakthrough. So text them right now. And if, if you get anything back from them while tonight's message or tonight's meeting, come find one of us and give us an update. I like taking pictures of people text messages because I'm, I'm compiling a, a file, a paper and digital file of just, of just all these stories. Because every time I go to another city or another country, I've got like my testimonies are getting longer and longer. But the whole point of it is the momentum of testimony. We're creating a momentum. Okay, so please let us know. All right, John 15. What I want to talk to you about tonight, um, I've been having this word on my heart for a while now, and I actually feel this word is not just for Bethel Church in Reading. I actually have this, this, I feel like there are certain words that, and for those of us that preach and teach and pastors and leaders, we understand that there are certain words that aren't just for your body. They feel like they're words for the church. So I've been carrying this word around for a number of months now, and I want to release it here tonight. I feel this word is going to be a prophetic word as well as an apostolic word, and there's a lot of pastoral components to it. To me, this word actually helps to create a construct of why we gather, why we have church. It's not complete, it's not definitive, it's not absolute, but it definitely will give it a perspective that I think is crucial for the days that we live in. I was actually on my way back from South Africa and this word erupted in me and the word was disruption. And I remember I was so moved by that word disruption and you look up the word disruption actually means to interrupt the flow of something. Something is moving in one direction, and when you disrupt it, you interrupt that flow. Sometimes you end that flow, or you redirect that flow. 
And I, I wrestled with calling the messages that I've been teaching disruption for one primary reason, because I was concerned that it might incite or even imply some sense of angst, some sense of uh, frustration, some sense of like, we're just going to power, power trip everything. We're going to do things with vengeance and maybe revenge. And, and that's, that's not what I'm referring to. And so what we've done is we've been looking at the life of Jesus we're going to look in Luke 15 in just a little bit, but we've been looking at the life of Jesus and how did Jesus actually bring disruption? Jesus actually was extremely disruptive in nature. Everything he did, and ultimately the cross, the resurrection of him, when Jesus rose from the grave, it disrupted everything in existence before him, during him, and after him. Jesus was extremely disruptive. Disruptive, And it's important as believers, we understand that we have a calling, we have a mandate, a responsibility to disrupt anything that does not look like heaven. Anything that does not look like heaven, we have a responsibility to bring disruption to that. But I do want to give a framework because I don't want to incite some sense of activism that is unhealthy. I don't want to incite that or imply that. There is a time and place for some of that. So there are four key words that I've noticed the life of Jesus. Jesus disrupted things through peace, thoughtfulness, poise, and precision. Peace, thoughtfulness, poise, and precision. There are so many moments in the life of Jesus where he was stepping into a situation that was extremely non-peaceful, extremely chaotic, extremely unpleasant. And Jesus stepped in with, as a man of peace and brought peace to a situation. We know the story of the storm where he slept through the storm and he told the storm to stop. And that baffled the disciples. He carried such a peace in some of the most complicated, conflicted moments in history was when Jesus walked the earth. He did not step into human history in a time that everything was okay. He stepped into potentially one of the most intense religious times of such deep, deep, horrible religion. And Jesus stepped in as a man of peace and disrupted it through peace. Jesus was very thoughtful. I'm, so, I'm always moved by the thoughtfulness of Jesus. He's one of the most, if not the most thoughtful man to ever walk the face of the earth. One of my, some of my favorite stories is, is where he would single one person out and hone in on that one person. Zacchaeus is a great example. He had crowds of people trying to get Jesus' attention. He got multitudes around him. And in the middle of this moment where the paparazzi is going berserk, he looks at a man in a tree and said, hey, Zacchaeus, I want to have lunch with you. I find that so thoughtful that he would pick one person instead of spending time with the multitude. He did it with individual people. He was so thoughtful. The thing that also moved me about Jesus, he had such composure. He lived in one of the most, to the animosity, the hostility that people had toward Jesus, the religious systems of that day, they, they, the, blas the blasphemous thing they say, the accusation they said of him, towards him, he had such composure. The ability to be that much poised in the midst of complicated, conflicted moment moves me. He would never let that control him. He always remained a man of composure. And the final thing that I've noticed about Jesus, he was a man of precision. He didn't spend a lot of wasted energy, wasted efforts. He wasn't a baseball player just swinging a bat hoping someday he would hit the ball. He waited until he knew he'd hit the ball and then swing the bat. He was precise. He'd wait to these opportune moments. Have you noticed he would always question the questioner? 
people would ask him a question and he would ask them a question. What would Jesus do? And he was honing in, he was being precise. This whole thing of disruption is something that we've been studying as a family back home and I feel like it's for the church and obviously for this church as well and for anyone in this room. But tonight, I actually want to flip the table a little bit. I want to talk about something from a very different angle. And tonight's title of this message is The Intimate Disruption. The Intimate Disruption. I want to talk about how you are the target of God's affection. You are the one he is after. And I want to tonight, I want to take you through some of the most powerful parables on this topic. You know, I would, um, this last year my daughters had a, a fundraiser for their high school. And it was a crab feed. And Candace bought two tickets to the crab feed. It was a fundraiser. And it was a 21-year-old, um, you had to be older than 21 because they were serving alcohol. And so my daughters couldn't come with me. My wife doesn't like crab. We need to pray for her. I'm just... I wish you loved crab, because then we could just go to crab feeds all year and just scarf away. I was just in Maine two days ago, and I had some lobster, and it was unbelievable. I just love it. So anyway, don't get distracted. So, I'm, so I'm, I go to this crab feed, and I skip lunch that day, and I skip dinner that day. It's like, I'm going to have all-you-can-eat crab. And so, but I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And so my thought was I was going to walk in, eat as much crab as I want, and then leave. I didn't realize it was like a three or four hour ordeal. So I walk in the room and I'm like, I'm looking for where the crab table is. Like, how, how does this work? Do I just get a, ta- a plate? And I, I didn't know how it worked. And I, I didn't realize there was an auction, a silent auction. There was a giveaway. I think there was a band there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I skipped lunch and dinner for this. And so I'm like, well, I can't go home because the family already eaten dinner and they were getting late. And I'm like, I might as well just stick this thing out. So I found a table in the corner where no one was at. I was like, and I don't mind hanging out with people. I, I love people. I'm a pastor, so I obviously love people. But I was not in the mood to be social that evening. I just wanted my crab and I wanted to go home. <laughs> I was kind of being a crab, to be honest with you. So I'm in the corner and I'm sitting at my table and I'm like, oh man, this is not what I thought was going to happen. And, and then pretty soon people started coming in like by a lot and like the room had packed. And so my table is now full of people, which is great. But I made the mistake of wearing my Bethel music hat. <laughs> mistake meaning that it, it's a great conversation starter. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and so they're like, oh, I'm not trying to be social. I'm just trying to play it way down. I'm like, and then people across the table sat down. Oh, we used to go to the pastor from Bethel with like shark in the water, shark in the water, shark in the water. <laughs> A pastor at her table, you know, one of those moments I'm like, finally the crab finally comes out in big old bend. And I'm like, all right, put my bib on and we're ready to go to town. And we all were, we all just wanted to eat. probably in his 80s. And he had a war veteran hat. He had a jacket on with his patches. And it was a really wonderful gentleman. And he was really, really very, very chatty. And then he started asking me all these questions. He was all, so, you know, how do you know you're going to have questions? All, so do you have to be part of a denomination to go to heaven? I'm like, no, not at all. Honestly, it's, it's through Jesus Christ. It's, you confess your sins and Jesus Christ. And I just gave him a really simple message. He's like, oh, okay. And then we eat some more crab. And we just kind of just, you know, we talk and eat, talk and eat. And he's getting like, well, if I'm trying to understand the whole thing. And so we get about 30 minutes into crab eating and said, how do you know? Easy. I hear his voice. He talks to me. You should have seen the look on this guy's face. 
I said, oh yeah, I hear his voice. He talks to me. And the guy had no grid for it. He's like, no, no, there's not even. But he was so amused by this idea that God actually wants to be in relationship with you. Our belief, our faith from every major world religion is that our God wants a relationship with you. You are the target of his affection. And so let's open up to Luke chapter 15. I need to jump into there because my goal is to get through uh, one of the big parables in this chapter. Luke chapter 15. N.T. Wright made this quote, obviously, admiration and wonder at something or someone. You begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. Before we read Luke 15, there's, there's actually four loves. There's four Greek words for love. Down there's agape, phileos, storge, and eros. Forgive my pronunciation of them, but that is the best I can do. Agape, phileos, storge, and eros. Agape is God's love. It is, is what described as God's love. Now, we understand that God isn't just know how to love. He is the definition of love. It is the most powerful force in all of the universe is the love of God. You can find the love of God on every page in the Bible. Agape love is the most important love. Then there's phileos. Phileos is basically um, friendship love. It's what you feel towards a friend, and it's what a friend shows to you. And I know people in this room, I have that one friend. I just feel this friendship love. That's called phileos. Then there's storge, which is parental protective love. This is that moms and dads in this room. You know what I'm talking about. When your first child was born, something woke up inside of you. You're like, what is that? Whether you're a mom or your dad, all of a sudden you found yourself loving this little human being and you didn't know you could love a human being in the way that you found out the moment your child came out of the womb. That's called parental um, protective love. And this, this, this storge love is what, protect, what you want to protect your children with or anyone that you love. And then the last one is eros, which is romantic love, which is sexual the challenge with that, if, if agape love is not intellectually understood and experientially experienced, then you and I are left to define the other loves. Once you remove agape love, then you define what friendship love is. You define what parental love is. You are left to your own means to define that, or culture defines it for you. So the whole premise, the purpose of the agape love of God can't just be intellectually understood. It has to be experientially experienced, the agape love of God. The challenge with eros, romantic love, especially in a Western culture, when you say, when you say intimacy in a Western culture, most minds go to some sexual encounter. Because we have so strayed from the understanding of agape love that we've allowed culture or we've allowed ourselves to define what intimacy actually is. And we go to some perverted view of what sexual love is. So the whole premise of the agape love, my heart tonight, is that you would get a better understanding. But more than that, that you're ushered into an experience. I feel like the Lord is about to unleash on the church a new wave of agape love. I believe the agape love, the church is about to move into it in greater measure because we live in a society and culture that had deconstructed it to the point that it's nothing. The morality truth is, is dead, according to culture. And so the whole premise of you and I understanding the agape love of God could not be of any more important than this moment that we live in. So in Luke chapter 15, the very beginning of the chapter, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's eating with them, and this starts a little bit of a grumbling session with the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
And so he goes into three different parables. We're going to briefly talk about the first two, but we're going to focus on the last one the most. The first one he talked about nine, the hundred sheep. And most of you are familiar with it, but the story goes like this. There's a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray. And the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. So as he goes after the one, and when he finds the sheep, he comes back and he celebrates, I found my lost sheep. And then he goes to another parable right after that, and he says, there's a woman with coin, ten coins, and she loses one coin. And so she tears her whole house apart to find the one coin. And when she finds that one coin, she celebrates, I found my lost coin. What is Jesus doing? He is making a very clear message that the love of God is attracted to anything that is lost. The love of God is attracted to anything that's lost. But by the time we get to his third parable, do you see the progression here? The first parable is animal, and it's a big number, 100. Then it goes to some object in the form of coin and metal. And then by the third parable, he's driving it home to the human being. Remember, Jesus is sitting with sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees are complaining to him. And so Jesus decides to flip the script and said, let me tell you some parables. And he goes into the final parable. So let's read this together. Verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. Say two sons. Now, most, most Bibles, especially if you have a paper Bible on you, it will title this parable, The Prodigal Son. And that's one of the most famous, if not the most famous parable in all of Jesus' teaching is this parable. But I want to propose to you, this is less about the sons. It's actually more about the father of the sons. Do you notice that reference to the sons, not brothers? Why is that? Because it's the father's perspective on the situation. Now, it doesn't demean, the, doesn't demean the point of a prodigal son. That is valuable. There's a prodigal son, uh, the younger son, there's an older son, and then there's a father. So let's keep reading. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possession with prodigal living. Now, the word prodigal in the Greek actually ex refers to expensive living. Now, why is this important? Because later in the parable, we're going to get there in a little bit. Later in the parable, the older brother accuses his younger brother of sleeping with harlots. He said, Dad, he wasted all of our money on harlots and prostitutes. Well, here's the deal. That's actually what the brother thought he did, but that's not what the parable says he did. The parable said the Greek word for prodigal living, in some of your Bibles, it said wasteful or riotous living. What, what the actual Greek word means is expensive living. It's the idea of expensive living, meaning you spent all your money and saved nothing. Why is that important? Because the moment you and I think the prodigal son slept with harlots, most people in this room think, oh, that's not me. I want to propose to you the prodigal son is actually, I think, this is Eric's opinion, not by the sponsor, but by Eric's opinion. <laughs> I think this parable is more relevant to the believer than it is to the non-believer. Why? Because the prodigal son was living in the house. The prodigal son was living with the father in all of access to abundant resources and living within the context of the father's blessing. And that son decided to leave. So I want to propose to you, when we all, that he slept with the harlot and the prostitute, he did, I have no association with that, so I'm removing myself from understanding the point of this parable. So I want to propose to you, it's actually maybe more for us than it is for anyone else. 
And it's a challenge when we read scripture, we often, oh, that's not me, that's me, that's not, oh, that's for so-and-so. I want to challenge you, anytime you hear a message or read the Bible, don't apply it to someone else's life, apply it to your life. Apply it to your situation. Don't, don't go, oh man, you should have been there, that was for you. No, 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 that was for you. <laughs> so here we have this son who's a riotous living, he spends all of his money, expensive living. Now, we don't know how much time went by, but it took a while, obviously, to spend some money. Now, if you don't know this, it's important to understand that for in this Middle Eastern context in first century, for a son to ask his father for his inheritance is, it was in a way saying, I wish you were dead already so I could get my inheritance. In that context, there was no way a normal Middle Eastern man, a father, would ever give his son because what he was doing, he was shaming and bringing disgrace to the family. So Jesus broke the first rule in the parable by saying, this father gave him everything. This was violating the conscience, the paradigm of a Middle Eastern first century man. This was violating the rule. This was violating the customs of that day. And Jesus is disrupting and breaking the rule. He broke the first rule by saying the father actually gave him everything. So now the son goes out, spends it all. And look what begins to happen after that. In verse 14, and when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. This pods right there. So the son spends everything. And at the same time, there's a famine hits the land. So now the unemployment rates through the roof. No one has money. Everybody's running out of food. There's no resources. So he manages to find a job with a local pig farmer. So as he's trying to feed the pig, now in that day, the pigs ate what were called pods. It's carob pods. And the human body did not have the ability, excuse me, the human body did not have the ability to digest what the pigs were eating. So here's this son, the younger son, is at such an end of his road that food that his body cannot digest all of a sudden looks good. How many would say that's the end of your road? When you actually are trying to solve your hunger with something that your body cannot even digest. So he's at the end of his road, at the end of his line. Now look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with the hunger? Now what's fascinating me about this right here is that the motivation for the prodigal son to go home wasn't because he made a mistake. His motivation to go home wasn't because he broke the father's heart. His motivation to go home wasn't because he brought disgrace and shame on an entire family. His motivation to go home was hunger. So he conspired away, how do I get food in my belly? I want to challenge you. Sometimes we have limited people's repentance that have to look a certain way. God doesn't care. He's like, oh, you're hungry and that turns you back to the father? I'll take you. So we have to be really gracious in what repentance looks like. Now, does full repentance need to happen for freedom? Absolutely. But sometimes we're so picky and psh, you have to repent a certain way. You need to say these things. Listen, if they turn their heart back to the Father, that's good enough for him. There has to be a space, there has to be a place in our, in our lives, in our environment that, hey, they came just because they're hungry, they had no other option, that's good enough, let them in. Yeah. 
And so the son is hungry and he thinks, how do I get food in my belly? I'm going to tell my dad I no longer can be your son. He lost his sonship a while ago. But can I at least be your servant? And his motivation was so he doesn't die from starvation. And so let's keep reading the story. And I will arrive, verse 18. So this is his thought. I will arrive, go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your higher servants. Pause right there. So imagine that son is now rehearsing this thought. Okay, this is, this is have you ever gone in for an interview and you're really nervous, and so you stand in front of a mirror and you tell yourself what you're going to say? That's what the son doing. That. Okay, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, I'm, this is my sequence of thoughts. And my whole goal is I need food. So he's on his way home. And look what happened in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when, say but when. He was still a great way off. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This is one of the most phenomenal moments in this entire story is that the father was waiting. Now, what we do know that it took some time, meaning the father was constantly looking for the son to come home. This is the picture of the agape love. It is waiting for you to simply turn around and aim your face at him. And the moment you do that, the father ran out. Now, we have to ask the question, why would a father run in this situation? Now, I have two daughters. The moment my daughter turned home, I am running to them. That is normal in the Western context. No one goes, why are you running? They, they, they shamed you. They disgraced you. Western context, we don't understand what's taking place in this very moment. It's so normal to us. We're like, yeah, go get your son. Go get your daughter. Good job. In this context, that's not what's happening here. For a Middle Eastern man to run with a massive no-no in that culture. A man of this position was not allowed to run. He made his servants run. Why? Because in order to run, he'd have to grab his robe, pull it up, and tuck it in his belt, which would reveal his legs, which I want to propose to you were very white. Those legs had never seen the sun before. The whole village is like, dang, wow. Those are some white legs. But he couldn't run with the road because he would trip, so he had to reveal his leg. He broke another rule. So he runned out to meet the sun. Why did he get out there? Because in that first century tradition, they had a tradition called Kazaza. And what that was is a Jewish son took the inheritance and wasted it amongst the Gentiles. When that Jewish son came back to the village, the village would meet him at the entrance to the village with a pot. They would meet him with a big pot. They would throw the pot on the ground. It would shatter, and they say, you are forever banned from this family, and they kick him out for the rest of his life. So the father ran to the son before the village could get to him. The father ran to the son before judgment, condemnation would get to him. So in this moment, they see the son, two guys went and got the pot. And the father knew exactly what was happening. The father takes off running, embraces his son. You know how much confusion there was? They're like, what is he doing? I have no idea. He's not supposed to be out here. According to customs and tradition, the father would supposed to be emotionally withdrawn. He's supposed to stay home. Only the mother was allowed to come out and plead with the village for grace and mercy on the son. The father was not allowed to leave the house. So he is breaking every rule in the book. 
What do you think Jesus did when he died on the cross? He broke every rule in the book. So he's out there. He's hugging his son, kissing him. And they're bringing the pots out. And then he yelled back, get the robe. And they're like, I guess we're not doing the pot thing today. So they take the pot back. They put the pot down. Get the robe. Bring me some sandal. Get the sandal. And then he said the big, the big thing. He said, bring me the ring. What did you say? He said, bring me the ring. Bring him the ring. And they come out. They put, they put the robe on. They put sandals on his feet. And then he gives them the ring. Why is the ring a big deal? Because when you have the ring of your father, you got restored back to your rightful place. You got restored to power and authority, which I think is important to highlight. Because if we did this parable, we would not share this parable this way. We would have not told the story the way that Jesus told it. We would have said, you need to get your act back together, and then I give you your ring. And this is how we think. This is one of the reasons why I think it's crucial to understand that you can see signs and wonders and miracles walk in power and authority and still be jacked up in character. And we hate it. How did that person walk in signs and wonders and miracles and their life is a mess? It's one of the most hardest things for the church to grasp. And I'm not saying that's okay. I'm not saying I like it, but I'm saying sometimes that's how it is. I want to propose to you, God's in the business of rebuilding you. So he's like, hey, I'm going to give you power and authority now, and I'll take your whole life to work on your character. And we're like, that's not our gospel. Our gospel is get your whole life in order, and by the time you're 99 years old, you've made it, and you've got two days to live. So here we go. That's totally our kingdom. That's how we do kingdom stuff. That's how we think. And this breaks every rule in the book. He gives them power and authority, and he's not even repented. He was hungry. That was it. He was just hungry. Talk about the village. The village is like, this is really confusing. This is massively confusing. This doesn't make any sense. And what did Jesus, remember, he's talking to the eating with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus is like, I'm that guy that's breaking all the rules in the book. I'm the one that's going to meet with them first before I let your religion, your condemnation, and your judgment ever touch them. And so Jesus is sending a message for the moment, and he's getting ready to prepare them for what's to come in the death and the resurrection. So Jesus is sending a fat message. Now, honestly, it would be amazing if the story ended there. Actually, it would make more sense if the story ended there. Why? Because when they found the sheep in the early first parable, the story ended. When the woman found the coin, the story ended. And Jesus, in his brilliant, decided, I'm going to throw a twist in this plot. So he added the nether character to the story, which is so Jesus, just to just mess with everyone. So go to verse 20, go to verse, uh, where am I at here? Verse 20, I'm lost here. Verse 26. No, that's not what it is. I'm so sorry. Verse 25. I got too many highlights in my Bible. I can't even read the words anymore. Now his older son was in the field. Let's pause right there. Where was the son? He was not around for this moment that just took place. Also, he was never waiting for the brother. Imagine the son in the field working. He's like, my brother's lost everything, and guess who's getting everything now? 
If I just keep working, if I just keep breaking the field, one day the Father's going to give me everything. And he's working. He's thinking, I'm gonna, he's the eight to five guy. You see, the older brother actually has a job. The younger brother is the GoFundMe kind. <laughs> so I have some sympathy. <laughs> I know that was harsh, but it's true. Some of you are laughing because you have the goat. No, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> I have sympathy for the older brother. I have sympathy for the older brother. He's out in the field working. And while he's out there in the field, he hears music and dancing. So I think what he did, he grabbed his phone and he thought, man, whose birthday is it today? <laughs> no, no one's birthday. Whose anniversary? And he's looking on his calendar and he's like, I don't know. I don't, did I miss an invitation? Did I not get invited to a party? And so he's like, what's going on here? So he leaves the field and he heads in. And let's, let's keep reading the story. <clears throat> verse, uh, let's finish verse 25. And as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he had received him safe and sound, your father had killed the fatted calf. Imagine the brother. He's out there raking. He's planned his future. His future is secure. Raking his field. He finds out his brother has come home and all the celebration is for that. He is now confronted. He's angry. He's upset because he actually had the job. He's actually working. He, he goes to church every week. He pays the tithe. He gives to the mission fund. He, pay, he gives money to the building fund. He, he's a parking lot guy. He's an usher. I mean, this guy is working. He pays his bills. He takes care of his family. He honors his father. The guy got everything crossed Every T crossed and every I dotted. The guy got it dialed. I have a lot of sympathy for this guy. And here he is working his entire life, waiting for that moment that he can get his own fatted calf. And his brother comes home who completely shamed the family, disgraced the family. And let's keep reading in the next verse. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So while the father gained one son back, he's losing another son. Why do you think Jesus is doing this? He said, I'm embracing the tax collectors and sinners, but I'm about to lose you. He actually has sympathy for the Pharisees and Sadducees. He actually has compassion for the religious community. He had compassion for people that lost their way. He said, I'm gaining them, but am I going to lose you? It moves me. It moves because sometimes we read the story, the Pharisees and Sadducees are just a joke of the earth. And Jesus is saying, I have compassion for you. Will you help to celebrate and throw a party for the tax collectors and sinners? And the, boy, the older son refused to go in. Now the father has to leave the party to go talk to the older son. Have you ever been to a party or even thrown a party at your house and some crisis happened and you have to leave the party? It's really awkward. So it's now shameful and disgraceful for the father to leave the party that he's throwing to deal with his other son. So now the older son is embarrassing him. You thought the younger son was embarrassing him. Now the older son's embarrassing him. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees and Sadducees, you're embarrassing me right now. You do not understand someone's coming home and you're out there griping about some fatted calf. Wow. Yeah. Are you following me here? Yeah, so good. So good. So let's read a little bit farther here. 
So now the father's trying to plead with him in verse 29. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who had devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Verse 31, and he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. So this dialogue with the father and the son take place. <clears throat> and you can tell the son was thinking, I have worked my entire life to get a fatted calf. And yet I didn't even get a goat. And the father says something that's very profound. I think we're, we're going to learn more of what it actually means. He said, son, you're always with me. All that I have is you. See, the son forgot something. You see, the son thought that I'm in the family because of what I do. And he forgot that, no, he's in the family because of what the father did. You see, the son is, is a moral conformist. If I do the right things, someday I'm going to get there. If I, if I follow the rules, if I clock in at eight and clock out at five, and if I just continue that, someday I'm going to get something. And the father slaps him with the most illogical thing in the universe. Son, everything I have is already yours. Yeah. You thought that you had to do these things to get that? It's always been yours. How many believers are out there wondering the very same thing? What else do I need to do to get God's favor, his grace? And God's saying, all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. You're spending your entire life trying to morally conform to something, thinking that you're going to get my blessing because of some morality. So he's telling the Pharisees and Sadducees, you're working your life to be morally conformed. And you forgot the whole point. What's crazy, if you think about this, the, brothers, the older brother's older son's faithfulness actually ended up being unbelief. The older brother's faithfulness of working every day actually was a pure sign of unbelief that he was in the family. He called it faithful, and it ended up being pure unbelief. So I want to challenge you. Are you working to grace? Or are you working from attain something? Or are you already there and working from there? Are you trying to attain Jesus? Or are you working from Jesus? Are you trying to get into the presence? Or are you living from the presence? And so here we have a father that is the story about the extravagance of the father. In fact, I think the party wasn't for the son. The, the party was because the father was just extravagant. He wanted to throw a party. Why? Because in that day and age, when you throw a party for someone like the younger son, no one shows up. Everyone showed up because it was about the father. So I want to challenge you. So we've got an opportunity here, church. I'm telling you, what are you going to do when a transgender man walks through that back door? What are you going to do? What are you going to do when a transgender man walks through that back door? Are the moms and dads, are you going to take your children and sit on the other side of the room? Are you going to find the farthest space to get away from them? Or are you going to be the one to go back and say, hey, what's your name? So glad you're here. Do you like to sit in the front or do you like to sit in the back? I'm going to find you a seat. What are we going to do? When, when a homeless man walks through the door, man, they, they, they have an aroma I can't stand. So I'm going to sit on the opposite side of the room. Or are you going to be the one sitting next to them? What are we going to do when they come in? And what, what are you going to do? Are you going to be like the religious leaders saying, how can you embrace them? They're living in full-blown sin. 
What are we going to do? And these are key moments for us to make a decision right now. What kind of environment are we creating? What kind of churches are we building? And you'd be amazed at how many, sometimes I'm the older brother and sometimes I'm the younger son. And sometimes you're the older brother and sometimes you're the younger son. So this is something we got to be mindful of. And Jesus is confronting a religious system that had lost all compassion, that had lost all empathy. He did in John chapter 8, the adulterous woman is thrown to his feet and he does something in that moment. He stoops down in this moment, which is one of the most incredible things Jesus did in his life. He stoops down in the midst of a moment and this woman's about to lose her life to stones. And they asked Jesus the question, said, Jesus, should we stone this woman because the law says we can? She was caught in the act of adultery. Remember, this woman wasn't choosing to be in front of Jesus. They forced her in front of Jesus. And yet Jesus still provided grace and mercy and protection. Sometimes we're waiting for people to do certain things before they experience grace. Okay, you need to go to these things first before we really show you what the love of God looks like. In Jesus, a woman that was forced in front of him, he decides to protect her. And how does he do it? He goes to the ground. He stoops down. And the Bible said they continue to ask him the question. What was the question? Can we stone this woman? And in the, in the, original, the original language, it said uh, they continue to ask him means to pester him over and over and over. So Jesus is ignoring them, drawing in the sand, and they're asking him the question. And sometime later, two verses later, Jesus stands up and he said, all right, if you want to stone this woman, go ahead and stone her. But... You can only do it if you've never sinned. And I love that part of the story. Because in this moment, they regain their consciousness. Parents, please pick up your children <laughs> and bring them back to the service. That means I need to land this thing quickly. And I'm going to try. Am I good? Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. I saw like 10 people. I'm like, are we going to go to the bathroom or something? Oh. So Jesus stands up and he said, if you've never sinned, go ahead and stone the woman. My uncle Bob took me aside when I was like 18, 19 years old. And he said, Eric, I want to teach you about life. Now, if you know my uncle Bob, he's six foot six. He's like, uh, you know, Duck Dynasty. He's kind of that. <laughs> Except for he's super tall. He's 285 pounds and he has no fear. He's an amazing man. I love my uncle. He, he shapes me. He influenced me and shaped me. He says, Eric, I want to teach you about life. And so he sits me down and he said, when you're 20, in your 20s, you know everything. You've figured life out. I mean, you're like, I totally know how life, I have my future plan. I know, I, I know how this all works. And then he said, you hit your 30s. When you hit your 30s, life hits you. And you're like, you know what? Maybe I don't have life figured out. Then you hit your 40s and you're like, I have no clue how any of this works. <laughs> and then by the time you hit your 50s and 60s, you're just hoping to make it to heaven. Now, how many would say that's kind of true? Like, yeah, you know what? I just want to get there. That's all I'm thinking. And the John chapter 8 in this story, when Jesus said, go ahead and stone the woman if you've never sinned. And then they regained their conscience and starting from the oldest to the youngest, they walked out. Why do you think the oldest guy left first? The 81-year-old like, I'm out. I'm so out. <laughs> I, he, had, he realized he had loaded with a bunch of issues. The 70-year-olds are right behind them. 60-year-olds are like, yeah, I'm so out too. They get down. You know who the last guy standing is? Some 21-year-old kid. <laughs> Fresh out of college. 
that's got life all figured out. He's like, I can throw this stone. I totally can. And off in the distance, off in the distance, that 21-year-old kid mother shows up and said, Johnny, do you remember? Mom, be quiet. I was kidding. And then he leaves. And then Jesus looks up and he asked the woman, where are your, your accusers? And she says, there are none. And Jesus said, I don't accuse you, which means what? He was the only one that could throw the stone. But you know what? He didn't even confront the woman on sin yet. He never mentioned sin. He never mentioned repentance. He never mentioned get your life in order. What did he do? He provided a place of protection from judgment, condemnation, and religion. And once that left the scene, he said, hey, go and sin no more. So I want to challenge you. There's going to be people walking through those back doors. And you're going to have the temptation to be like the older brother. You're going to have, I've been working. I've been sitting on the front row for 10 years. And this Johnny comes in and everybody gets all excited for him. That's the attitude you must confront. That's religion, that's judgment, that's condemnation. What you'll notice, being the older brother doesn't get you a fatted calf either. So I want to challenge you, our responsibility as believers in the context of gathering corporately and building church is to create an environment that anyone can come in the room and we don't act like the younger brother or the older brother. We're a place where people can come in and get well. So I'm telling you, when you begin to create a culture like that, you're going to have a lot of different kinds and types of people coming through those back doors. You know why celebrities don't go to church? Because they can't. We had to take our church through a season. I'm going to try to land this thing in just a moment. We had to take our church through a season of, of teachings and training around this idea because we begin to notice that people, very high-profile people in the celebrity world, in the politi political world, in the sports world, and just any, any industry, to be honest, they were showing up at church and they were just like, oh, look who's here. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna go get a selfie. Can I get a selfie with you? And it just got started getting really interesting. So we, I, I took our church through a training. I said, guys, this is a place of refuge, a place of protection, and please stop taking selfies. Don't do the 50-foot selfie either. Well, the person's like over there and you're like, those are the most embarrassing. How many know what I'm talking about? Yeah. How many have ever done it? No, don't raise your hand. <laughs> but we had to take our church through this reality. Hey, this is a place of refuge. This is a place that anyone can come in yeah. and experience the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Okay. Let me pray for you on this. Cause this I feel like this is the word for the church. This is the word of creating a place of refuge for people to come in. And you and I are responsible to protect them. I shared it this morning. Um, I dedicated my last book to my grandfather, Emerald Johnson. I said, Grandpa, you taught us how to love people beyond our need to protect our own reputation. I pray that this house become the place that we are more concerned about creating a place of refuge, grace, and mercy than we are about the reputation. And in that, then you can deal with repentance and wholeness and health. You can deal with in that context. So why don't you stand to your feet for a moment? I'm going to pray real quickly because we're also going to pray for Joaquin and Renee yeah. and bless them as we start this, as we officially launch this church. But I want to pray for you as a house. And I understand we have visitors from all over, from other churches. And I pray that this message inspires you to create an environment in your own life and in your own churches, your own homes and businesses where this can take place. So put your hands out in front of you. I just want to pray a really quick prayer of blessing over everyone. Father, I thank you that you're calling the church to be better than it ever has been. 
we are the bride of Christ and we want to make you proud. We want to be like Jesus where half-naked women caught in the middle of adultery can be thrown at our feet and we are, we are busy protecting her from religion, condemnation, and judgment. Father, I pray that these back doors metaphorically and literally would be wide open for anyone to come in and experience grace and mercy like never before. And I pray for every person that our lives would be a space that people can go to to experience grace and mercy, repentance and forgiveness. To teach us how to be a place of refuge. Ultimately, teach us how to be like Jesus. Ultimately, that's what we want. We want to be just like Jesus in John chapter 8, Luke chapter 15, Mark chapter 7. God, we want to be like Jesus in how he dealt with people. And so I pray for a blessing on this room and everyone in this room. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. Go ahead and stay standing. Go ahead and stay standing. We're going to stand together and pray. If I could have Joaquin and Renee, if you guys could come up. Yeah. And Richard and Sylvia, you can come. And then whoever you've invited. And what would come up, let's come up on the stage so everybody can see you. What we're going to do right now, uh, Candace and Lauren as well, sorry. And yeah, come on up. What we're going to do right now is I am, we, we, want, we want to get around Joaquin and Renee. And we want to um, pray over them. We want to bless them. And I know that the, the, the community of you have been gathering for the last year and have been, have been meeting and getting ready for this weekend. So we're not so much installing them as pastors. We're not doing that so much. But we want to just bless them as they start this brand new adventure and journey. And I want all of us to be a part of this moment. And so we have some other local pastors and leaders that we've invited to come up. And we have a, an extra mic. Do we have that? Thanks, Eddie. And uh, I want you to join with us, and we're just going to get around. How many just love Joaquin and Renee? You guys, they're just. So what we're going to do, we're just going to extend your hand, and then uh, we're going to have uh, several of the, the crew in the back here of some of the leaders around this region just to bless them and uh, let's launch this church. Father, this is such an amazing moment. Father, I thank you that as a result of this couple coming, there is a shift in this region. There is in addition to this region, to your kingdom. Father, I want to thank you that they honor Bethel well. They carry the culture well. And so, Father, as, as leaders in this city, we say, welcome. Welcome. We value you. We value what you carry. And we say to you, we ask you to be fully alive to who you are and what you carry. That you are adding weight, you're adding glory to this city. And we declare more, 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 more glory to this city. So we welcome you and we thank you for what you bring. 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's right. And we just believe the Lord because of the openness of your heart and the, the willingness of the kingdom of God that's within you to be inclusive and not to be exclusive, that the Lord will bless the heart that he's put in you. These will be days of great increase, yes. great blessings. Yes. And out of Texas, the Lord spoke in 1973 to me that out of Texas would flow the greatest move of God to the whole yes. earth. Come on. Yes. And, we, and we welcome you to the city. As those that have stood for many years, we Come on. are excited that God is bringing you and bringing these people. Mm. And we bless you. We honor you. We just pray that these would be days of great increase. And even the favor that you carry will be multiplied, yes. favor upon favor. Yes. And we release the blessing of the Lord upon you. We receive you into the yes. city in Jesus' yes. name. Joaquin. Yes. There's a Bethel-sized hole in this city. <laughs> and we've been waiting for you to come. Yes. Amen. But also I want to tell you there's some other holes in this city too. And we pray that you would be a part of the team that brings other churches to the city. Because God wants to reach this city, and it's going to take more than one church to do it. Amen. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Yeah, so Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for Joaquin. We thank you for Renee. We bless you. We bless your hearts. We bless what, the God, has, what God has put in your hearts. Yes, thank you, Lord. We bless your feet in every place they're going to walk. We bless what the Lord puts in your hands. We bless the people that come around you. Yeah, we thank you, God, for who they are and who you are inside of them. Yeah, and I just say, be strong and courageous. Strong and courageous. Yes. And I thank you, God, for your favor. Crazy, crazy favor. That's right. Thank you, Lord. I thank you for even the favor that's on the stage. That's yeah, right. we bless you in the mighty name of Jesus. Yeah, commission you and we release you to be fully you. Commission yeah. you as pastors, as leaders in this region to serve the overall vision of what God is doing in this region. Yeah. And we pray for the people in this room that are part of this church already. We just pray that this would be a, a, a momentous moment that we will look back and say something special started this night. So we bless this house. We bless all the churches represented in this room. And we are utterly grateful that it's being embraced by, by other leaders in this room. And so, Father, we bless Joaquin and Renee and the Tates and the rest of the leadership team. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Be free to be fully who you are. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.
thank you. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> before, <laughs> before the service, Eric said, hey, at the end, we're going to pray for you, and then I'll just hand you the mic and turn it over to you, and that sounded like a great idea before the service. <laughs> now that doesn't sound like such a good idea. Oh, my goodness. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Uh, oh, thank you uh, for being here. Thanks for being hungry. Uh, thank you, Eric and Candice, for coming. Thank you for your hearts. Um, thank you for that prayer. You can, feel, you can feel just the sense of empowerment. And uh, I can't talk. <laughs> I'll just uh, mime it or something. I don't know. But that sense of empowerment, we can feel it. That, that prayer, we, we fully release you to be you. What a freeing feeling it is to get to run under their covering and in partnership with them, but where they encourage us to carry the full expression that God has uh, for, for this house, for this city, and uh, it, it's an amazing feel, and, and I feel like that reflects the heart of God um, that he's pouring out, and just at the end uh, of the session, I've just been feeling this like God's rolling out this welcome mat. And I feel like that there's this, there's this, there's this sense of hospitality uh, in the spirit. I just, he just, you just feel this big God hug in the room, and and I just, that there's something on the gift of hospitality that it doesn't. If somebody truly has the gift of hospitality, it doesn't matter if you met them before or how long you've been. As soon as you walk in their home, you feel like you belong. And I feel like there's just an anointing for that a sense of belonging um, in the place right now. And Eric said something this afternoon uh, that I loved. He said, we're not trying to gather everybody under one roof. We're trying to gather everybody under one father. And uh, wow. again, how many people have been blessed this weekend? Just being together, worshiping together, praying, praying for our city together. And uh, we, just, we just feel like it wouldn't, wouldn't be appropriate to have a, a, a Bethel launch conference without ending with a fire tunnel. So we're, we're going to do that. We're going to have a fire tunnel. We're going to have our, our ministry teams come up here. And, uh, and listen, I feel like it's a fire tunnel. But uh, before you move, but I feel like that there's an anointing. An anointing for a sense of belonging. Oh my goodness, how adorable are you? <laughs> There's an anointing for a sense of belonging. And some people, you're here because you want to make Bethel Austin home. That's awesome. Some people are, are visiting and you're a part of other amazing churches in the, in the region. But listen, it's not one roof, it's one father. But I feel like God is here and he's inviting us all up. And when, and when the prodigal son came home, he, he didn't, God doesn't just restore things to, to the way they were. He restores them to better than where they were. And I feel like the, the, the gift of hospitality of Father God is here to say you belong. 
in what he's doing in this region, and I feel like he's calling us all up higher. So we're going to, if we can get our, our, team, our uh, ministry teams, let's make a fire tunnel. <clears throat> make a fire tunnel along here, and <clears throat> thank you, Jesus. Before, before you move, I, I'm going to... I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I understand some people drove long distance to get here. If you, if you can't stay, that's, that's great. I'm going to pray. The blessing of God is going to follow you home and chase you down and meet with you tonight as you lay down to sleep. Can we just lift our hands to, to God? and Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're doing. And we thank you for what you're getting ready to do even as we move forward together. And I believe I said it last night, but I, I've, learned this, I've learned this pivotal key in the kingdom that we can go, give God thanks for what he's done after he's done it, which is powerful. But I believe it's even more powerful to give God thanks for what he's getting ready to do before he even does it. So one last time together, if you believe God is getting ready to do things like Bill said, in Texas, they're going to impact the nations. Can we give God a really big shout of praise and thanksgiving as we exalt his name together. We exalt his name together. Exalt his name together. Thank you, Jesus. We give you praise tonight. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit www.bethelchurchaustin.com.